Urban air pollution is now re-emerging as one of the world's leading environmental problems. The smog associated with rapid industrialization has seen warnings of airpocalypse in India's and China's cities, while traffic fumes in London and other Western cities shorten thousands of lives. According to the World Health Organization, it's now the world's biggest environmental health risk. It seems timely and useful then to look back at an important milestone in environmental protection, the passage of Britain's Clean Air Act of 1956. But it'll become clear that, as is the case today, awareness of air pollution dangers didn't result in swift action to control emissions. Britain was the first industrial nation. Coal was the primary source of energy for its mills and workshops and the main source of heat in millions of homes. As coal consumption gradually increased from around 10 million tonnes per annum in 1800 to over 200 million by 1950, smoke emissions became a major problem, blackening urban architecture, destroying vegetation, blocking out sunlight, and not least of all, damaging the people's health. Ricketts was endemic in British cities and respiratory diseases were the nation's biggest killer by the turn of the 20th century, accounting for somewhere between 50 and 70,000 deaths every year. Bronchitis became known as the British disease. Tall smokestacks like those of industrial leads, some over 100 metres in height, were designed to reduce local air pollution by discharging smoke high into the atmosphere to be dispersed by the prevailing winds. The old adage had it that the solution to pollution is dilution. However, coal smoke didn't disappear as harmlessly as contemporaries had hoped. Topographical and meteorological conditions often prevented the dispersal of coal smoke. For example, Manchester, bounded by the Pennine chain of hills, found that its smoke became trapped for days at a time during spells of cold, calm weather. And when tall smokestacks did function effectively, they simply displace smoke pollution to plague other communities downwind. Smoke emissions from people's homes released smoke into the air at street level and were thought to be even more of a problem and indeed more difficult to disperse. The smoke nuisance, as it was commonly known, a term that didn't do justice to the damage it caused, became a serious problem in urban areas, particularly during the winter months. In 1889, the Spectator magazine spoke of a reign of darkness in London, adding that its citizens lived in something not far from perpetual twilight, as this image from Monet's London series confirms. Anti-smoke organisations Anti-smoke organisations like the Manchester Association for the Prevention of Smoke, London's Coal Smoke Abatement Society, and the National Smoke Abatement Society, 
was springing up in Britain from the 1840s onwards. Yet their campaigns to reduce air pollution in Britain's cities didn't attract much popular support. So why did it take more than a century for tough legislation to be introduced to tackle the smoke nuisance? Cultural values and beliefs about coal smoke were major obstacles for the abatement movement. Through the 19th and into the early 20th centuries, Britain was the workshop of the world, and its smoke had positive connotations. Coal smoke, as one of Manchester's leading industrialists put it in 1897, was the incense of industry. And this postcard, just about make it out, the bottom there it says beautiful Man Manchester. Um, not great art like Monet. Um, and despite its darkly humorous tone, it celebrates industrial smoke as a symbol of progress and prosperity. Industrial chimneys meant healthy trade conditions and jobs to most city dwellers. They were a normal part of everyday life, indicated by an industrial northern expression, where there's muck, there's money. In addition, domestic life in Victorian and Edwardian Britain, right up indeed until the eve of the Second World War, revolved around the open coal fire, especially during the cold winter months. It provided heat, light, hot meals, boiling water. Um, the cheerful glow of the homely hearth denoted domestic comfort, human warmth to contemporaries. So despite the growing awareness of problems, pollution problems outdoors, there was a great reluctance to give up, give up this hugely popular British institution. Governments of the day were afraid to cause resentment among the electorate by passing legislation that would interfere with the freedom to enjoy a blazing coal fire. There were no votes to be had in clearing the skies just as there are no votes today in curbing the use of the car. Before the 1950s, weak and poorly enforced legislation had little effect in cutting smoke pollution and improving air quality in city centres. Smoke control laws all contain fundamental flaws from the early acts of the 1840s through the Public Health Act of 1875 to the Smoke Abatement Act of 1926, um, including a best practicable means clause. Um, the best practicable means didn't mean the best available means using the latest technology. It meant what apparatus that an industrialist could afford, um, however rudimentary. Um, insignificant fines. Um, legislation introduced to combat smoke only imposed very low levels of fines, which essentially gave industrialists a license to pollute. And exemptions, particularly the failure to regulate emissions from domestic fireplaces. Monitoring showed that smoke in smoke from people's homes caused at least half of all problems in city centres. 
and as much as three quarters in London. Campaigners were optimistic, however, that science and technology would provide solutions to the wide-ranging problems caused by the smoke nuisance. And there were smoke abatement appliances available that promised both low emissions and fuel economy with substantial savings on energy bills. For example, mechanical stokers were available to manufacturers from the 1840s onwards. The hoppers that you see pictured here, um, they release small quantities of fuel onto furnace fires to, um, to provide perfect combustion, smoke abatement. But these kinds of appliances were expensive items and were unreliable oftentimes in the workplace. So the savings that they promised, varying from 200 to 400 pounds per annum, often failed to materialize. And there were smokeless alternatives to the open fire too. Closed stoves, widely used in continental Europe and North America, offered cleaner and more economical means of home heating. But while they burnt less coal, emitted less smoke and saved householders a little money, they were cheerless in their appearance. It made them unpopular and they were never adopted on a large scale in Britain. Gas and electricity um, derived from coal, but cleaner, more efficient, more convenient forms of energy, which offered, to, offered the opportunity to release women from drudgery, um, heat available at the flick of a switch. Um, some progress was made in the interwar years. Town gas was being widely, widely used for cooking rather than for heating by the interwar years. Some businesses, too, were beginning to switch to gas and electricity, where power was needed intermittently in production processes, such as in the ceramic industry, engineering, iron and steel, the food processing industries. But progress was slow, because they were still expensive alternatives, where heat and power were required constantly Anti-smoke campaigners regularly complained about the curse of cheap coal. Where the politics is concerned, Parliament appointed several committees in the 19th and early 20th centuries to investigate the nuisances arising from smoke, including the McKinnon Committee on Smoke Prevention, um, Two committees, in fact, in 1843 and 1845. The Select Committee on Smoke Nuisance Abatement of 1887. The Newton Committee on Smoke Abatement and Noxious Vapours of 1914 and 1920-21. to 21. It was interrupted by the First World War. But the smoke was closely associated with jobs and prosperity because it wasn't possible for contemporary physicians to prove conclusively that air pollution caused ill health. There was little political enthusiasm for tough action to tackle the problem. As we've already heard today, um, politicians are kind of ri risk-averse creatures. 
The evidence of anti-smoke experts to parliamentary committees, including many doctors, largely went unheeded. Indeed, before and after the Second World War, political advertising featured smoking chimney stacks as symbols of industrial activity that will be understood by all. This is an election poster from the 1935 um, general election, the national government poster. National government will keep those stacks of work going. The National Smoke Abatement Society complained about these posters that celebrated industrial backwardness, inefficiency and waste. And it was campaigning groups like the National Society, the National Smoke Abatement Society, rather than government, that had always taken the lead in the struggle for clean air. From pamphleteering through smoke abatement exhibitions to public information films by the 1930s. The smoke abatement movement had kept the issue in the public eye for more than a century. But it was London's great smog of December 1952 that provided the political impetus for tough national legislation. The Clean Air Act of 1956, which was long overdue. According to official figures, the great smog killed 4,000 people. Um, more recent research has it that it's more likely to be 12,000. They were, according to campaigners, unnecessary deaths. And the disaster was a turning point in the nation's environmental history. It saw public opinion shift decisively in favour of smoke abatement. Dirty air was finally recognised to be as dangerous as polluted water supplies, allowing the government to act. The Clean Air Act saw the establishment of smokeless zones in towns and cities across the country. Importantly, it also provided for substantial grants to householders to offset the cost of installing new heating and cooking appliances in their homes, smokeless fuel burners, gas and electric fires. But urban skies were slow to clear as millions of domestic coal fires couldn't be converted overnight. There were also shortages of smokeless fuels. Smoke control programs in Britain's cities took decades to complete. For example, not until 1985 was Manchester's smoke control program finally completed. Britain's dark age was probably blacker, gloomier than China's today. Contemporaries regularly experience night at noon. And one lesson we should learn for the future is that even when obstacles to smoke control to pollution problems are overcome, energy transitions don't happen quickly. Thank you. <laughs>